Good morning. So I just thought I'd begin today with this uh, reminder uh, that Luke talks about in Acts 1, 1 through 2. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So we, many, much of the church around this time celebrates the, the feast or the day of ascension, which is 40 days after Jesus was resurrected. So when he was resurrected, he spent 40 additional days instructing and teaching his disciples. And then on that 40th day or so, he ascended uh, permanently. Uh, and uh, then we look forward to that day that he will come again. At least most of us look forward to that day he will come again. Uh, maybe some people don't so much. But what's interesting about this particular text is it alludes to all of these witnesses who saw Jesus uh, in a resurrected state. And so uh, later on, there's more discussion about that. But uh, one of the things that we'll be talking about in the future is how the Bible is self-authenticating, that the truths of the Bible are self-authenticating. So um, when I, I don't, think I'll get to it next, well, I may get to it next week, I'm not sure, but when I talk about, um, in this apologetic series, about the, the veracity of the scriptures, uh, that's one of, the, one of the themes I'll be talking about is how the Bible is self-authenticating. So just, just by way of example, the, old, the, the Bible is the only religious book in the world that has two testaments. In the First Testament, it predicts what will happen. And in the Second Testament, it tells what happened that was predicted. Does this make sense to you? No, no other religious text does that. It's truly remarkable in that fashion. So it's self-authenticating. This stuff is going to happen, and then after about a thousand years or 1600 years or, or whatever this stuff actually happened it's happening now and so we're recording it for you it was said back then it's happening now and so we are recording it for you so uh, this is just one of those texts from acts that that alludes to how it is self-authenticating so we're on this series apologetics and foundations of the christian faith and so two weeks ago i kind of did an introduction and i was only able to get about uh, halfway through, and so I, I thought it would be helpful if I finish that this week. I think I can. Uh, look, I, on this topic, on this series, I'm just not going to rush it. I'm just going to go as I feel like the Lord's leading me, and um, I always have usually more than what I can do um, on a Sunday, unless I speed read, and I'm not going to do that. I also want to leave room for you to ask any questions. Uh, as we go along. And uh, when we do that, I really do feel as if that we're very much in the tradition and in the spirit of the, of the, of the early church. That when an elder began to teach uh, his congregation, this was true, this was true even in, um, in Judaism, like in a synagogue, as an elder would teach if there was a question or somebody looked puzzled, there was discussion, there was, there was teaching, there was 
those kinds of things. So I am, I am perfectly fine with you asking questions, or if I see you have a puzzled face, then that will cause me to uh, stop and try and explain it a bit more. Because um, I think that this is very much in keeping with Ephesians 4, where the role of the, the prophets and the teachers and the pastors is to instruct the laity for the purpose of ministry. So uh, I just, I, I want to do right by that. And uh, I'm 62. It's amazing it took me this long to figure it out as uh, with the kind of clarity that I have now about it, but it's true. So our primary apologetic text will be from 1 Peter 3.15. So, um, and many of you have heard this text before. I read it two weeks ago, but I think it's an important text. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to that. Um, this is a text that, that says in a very succinct, very pithy way what the whole of the scriptures say in a in, in terms of a big picture, but in your hearts, Peter says, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so I want to spend just a couple moments on this and then launch off from this particular text. Remember, Peter is writing to a group of churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. And those churches that Peter, were, that, that Peter was writing to, um, as he said, always being prepared to make a defense, <laughs> this is the irony, is that two and three hundred years later, those churches were the churches that gave some of the most profound and important defenses of the Christian faith in the history of the church. Some of the church's most influential leaders came from that very region. And I can't, I can't help but wonder if, as Peter was writing this to those churches that were about to endure some, some terrible persecution, if he helped to begin a tradition of teaching and instruction that shaped the church for the next 2,000 years. Because these people took Peter seriously about what it, meant, what, it, what it meant for them to be able to defend what it was that they believed. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense. Later on in my notes, I have a, a slide that talks about how Christians should look forward to being triggered to be apologists about the faith. So in my conversations with people in a variety of places, um, I oftentimes hear people say, or I read where people said something that triggers me to say, now why would they say that? 
What is their proof? Is it true? How would I respond to that? Why do I think it's untrue? Where, where could I go to find whether or not that is true or untrue? Why would they say it that way? So those people trigger me, and I suspect there have been some people here who have been in conversations or you've read or seen something on TV or read something online or whatever, and somebody said something, or, and it, you're like, that's just not true, but you didn't know why it wasn't true, and you weren't sure where to go and get it. And that's why I think it's important that we have a series like this. And hopefully whet some appetites here where you'll have the confidence to move forward and to go and to look for places that can give you the information that you need to be able to engage people in a way that's really edifying for them in terms of the faith. Because we represent Christ. This isn't just about getting into heaven. It's about representing he who is from heaven in order to help other people into heaven, to partner with Christ in that way. So honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. Now I'm going to get into some questions later on, but what, what is the reason for why you believe? I mean, fundamentally and foundationally, why do you believe what you believe? Can you articulate that in a way that's compelling? I mean, really, it does have to be something more than um, the Bible said it and that settles it. I mean, it has to be, it has to be a little bit more than that for people to appreciate the reason for why you believe the way you believe and our, your ability, our ability to articulate it. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. There is no place in the church or in the faith for people who are arrogant and for people who arrogantly try to argue people into heaven. There's just no place for it. Um, there's no, there can't be any belittling. Um, and, and I don't suspect that anybody here is like that, but I have been around more than my fair share of Christians, and maybe you have too, where because people didn't believe like they believed, the arrogance that those who did believe was palpable was uncomfortable, it was awkward. And we can't be that. We can't be like Jonah, that because the Assyrians didn't believe, because they were mortal enemies of the Israelites, Jonah just wanted God to nuke them. And there are a lot of people in the world today like the Assyrians, metaphorically speaking, who put people in bondage, who do wild and crazy and wacky things, 
who would, if they could, subjugate you and me. And yet our response to them in many respects has to be with gentleness and respect because they don't know their right hand from their left hand. That too is apologetics. So at its core, 1 Peter 3.15 is a text about evangelism that also implies apologetics. So it's a text about evangelism, getting ready, being ready uh, in season and out of season to give an account for the hope that exists within you. And that account is a defense a lot of times. And it's, it's an apologetic. It's a defense of the faith. Now remember, every book in the New Testament in, informed and defended the faith. So every book in the New Testament has an apologetic component. It defends the faith. It informs, it corrects, and it defends the faith. And by extension, every believer was required to inform and to defend the faith. So we all are here. We, we are all required to do that. And I know that for some people here, I'm sure that sounds overwhelming. You would be terrified to be in a, a situation where somebody may, have, may be better educated or more informed or whatever, and you wouldn't know quite what to say. Well, usually in God's providence, those people never come to you. The people that God brings to you are the people that you probably could have that conversation with. The argument could be made that every gospel writing and New Testament epistle functioned as an apologetic on behalf of Christ and the faith because they were written to inform, correct, and rebuke errant teaching and misunderstanding about Christ. Let me ask you this question. Is there any errant teaching or misunderstanding about Christ in today's world? Exactly, right? How are they going to know... Unless, you know, because it can't be the hired gun like me. It has to be all of us. And so, um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm just, sometimes I'm just stunned. And, and not just by, not just by, like, uh, I mean, to me, there are certain things about Christ and about God that are so unbelievably obvious and, and some very intelligent people miss it. And it just, it just, you know, it's just amazing. So um, you probably know some people. You probably work with some people. There may be some people in your neighborhood that have some profound misunderstandings of who Jesus is and what he requires and how we work our way into their life and with gentleness and respect engage them in a loving manner makes all the difference in the world. Makes you kind of wonder, doesn't it, 2,000 years ago? Believers back then didn't have, like, you know, if you were to go into my library, I, have, I probably have thousands of dollars worth of books about the Christian faith. I mean thousands and thousands of dollars worth of books. Over the years, I've, I've been able to acquire them. I have a thing called Bible Works, which is a software program which allows you to do amazing things in your understanding. I mean, last night I was on Bible Works 
and it has a time map. And so I just follow it all the way because I, I couldn't quite remember when Abraham was born, about 2000 B.C. I just followed it to there. I wasn't sifting through a whole bunch of tombs. I just got on there. And, and then if I want to study the Greek, I can go to the Greek or the Aramaic or the Hebrew. If I want to read it in the Latin, I can read it in the Latin. It's an amazing program. But 2,000 years ago, Christians didn't have any of that kind of stuff. They didn't have special seminars that you could go to to learn how to do whatever. They just, you know, I think relied on their passion for Christ and the authentic way in which they lived and the, the encounters that God brought to them with other people who were not believers or those kind of, and so they were ready, and the church flourished. Now, I do want to say this parenthetically. Remember two weeks ago, maybe you may or may not remember, but I talked about what apologetics is not, and it is not a substitute for authentic Christian evangelism. Authent apologetics just helps us. It's not an end in itself. In other words, if any of us think that we can rationally argue a person into the faith, you're probably going to be disappointed most of the time. When we do apologetics, two things happen. Number one, it conveys to them that we have given some deeper thought about why we believe the way we believe. That, there's, that there are other ways of thinking about the Christian faith that we've given some rational deep thought, and they can say, well, you know, they're not, this just isn't blind faith. Boy, I could tell that this person's really thought about this. Don't you appreciate people who are thoughtful about their responses rather than just sort of blindly telling you, but they're thoughtful? Well, this is, this is also the reason why I think this, and so you're able to share. Apologetics also helps them because it gives them some handheld, some handholds in addition to what it is that you're trying to say to them about Christ. So it helps them to see a bigger picture about why it's reasonable to believe and to have faith in Christ. It kind of, it kind of bumps things along when you can have this kind of a conversation with them. But it's not a substitute for authentic Christian evangelism or church growth. Now, I, this is parenthetical, but, but it's related. I, I entered into the ministry during the beginning, the middle, and the, the height of the church growth movement. Are you familiar with that term, church growth movement? So there were all a gazillion seminars and conferences that you could go to about how to grow your church. I've been to Willow Creek. Willow Creek would worship about 20,000 people on a weekend. You go into this massive auditorium, glass walls. You could see the, the Canadian geese fly down along the side there and land in the lake and like swim around. And they had an unbelievable audiovisual system that if Austin had access to it, access to it, he would just be like be in heaven, be, be glorious. And so 
they would talk about how they grew as a church and all the things that you have to do. And that whole church growth movement that Willow Creek spearheaded to a large degree was based on a corporate marketing model. So what they did in that time was they took principles that worked in the corporation, the business world, and they applied them. And then they marketed their church. Now, you know, all of us were kind of enamored with it, I think, early on. But one of the first things that came to light with me about the whole marketing idea of a church, and it's not that you don't, it's not that it's not, it's not that it's a bad thing to tell people. So the church growth movement basically replaced, in many respects, it was the apologetic of the time. Because all you had to do, right, is that you needed somebody up front who looked cool. It's true. I mean, there were some exceptions, but it was largely true. Kind of had to be good looking. Maybe wear some skinny jeans, have some tattoos and for some people, you know. You had to be, you had to be a first-rate communicator. Um, and, uh, and then you had to have a, a really pleasant building to be in with all the latest bells and whistles that would attract people. So it was what you would call an attractional model. Because it was such a cool place, people would be attracted to be there. Not that that's all bad. But that's, those are some of the things that began. And so instead of having to defend or to rebuke or to talk about Christ and to attract people in that way, the apologetic was the marketing of the church in the corporate business model as the, as the organizational structure. So these were the words that I learned when I was in the middle of all that. Vision statements, benchmarks, outcomes, strategic development, felt needs, marketing. I can't find any of those here. I can't find any of that in here. But this is, the, this is what happened. These became the thing instead of the main thing becoming the main thing. And I think we lost some ground when that happened. That became the apologetic. We can convince people to come to Christ if we have a cool place and a cool pastor and a great communicator, then we can... We can save the church and save the world. Recently, <clears throat> there was this large survey that was done. Again, I'm in this parentheses, okay? There were five questions in a worldwide survey, how to measure success in a church. This is, this is what pastors said. These were, these were the indicators it, whether or not they had a successful church. Number one, church attendance. Now, obviously, you have to have, have, to have some church attendance, right? But I can tell you that the competition 
among pastors about who could say they had the biggest church was about as unseemly as it could be. And many of them became celebrity pastors because of how many people came. And, and, and so, and so what, what happened, not for all, but for many, was that the, because the pastor was the celebrity, people were, were attracted to the celebrity. And so it was only because of what he did. It wasn't because, well, let's see, this church is located in a high growth area, but this church is not. These people are looking for a church, so they go to that church, and they would have gone to that church anyways. Those were some of the dynamics. Number two, you're successful if you, you, you can measure the dollars that were donated. So there, there, you know, as I did youth ministry, there was a clear delineation between youth ministers who came from churches that were wealthy and churches that, didn't, that did not. And I've, I've been in both of those kinds of churches. And the kudos and the accolades that are aimed at other youth ministers because of the dollars that were donated was all too apparent. The third thing was the number of programs offered. So I, I've been a part of a church where they had uh, 45 different ministries going on in that church at the same time. 45. We have about six or seven. But the more ministries you offer, the more successful you are. And, and there, it's not that those ministries are bad or not that people's lives aren't being changed. But I'm not sure that's a way that you want to measure success or not. Uh, you know. Number four, number of staff people. And again, I've been to those conferences where somehow the pastor can conveniently just sort of let it slip that he has 25 staff people working for him. And it just looks good, right? And so they measure their success by how many staff people they have. And then number five, you'll love this, square footage of the facility and all the bells and whistles. You know, there was this big building rage campaign that, that, that was a part of the 80s and 90s for a lot of years. In this denomination, in this district, we, we kind of went through that where we just had all of these building programs and unfortunately a lot of those churches no longer exist. They could not sustain that. So they wanted to build these churches. They built those churches, but they couldn't sustain those churches. And so they lost those churches. So it was all about building. It's all about footage, square footage. And, 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 and I, to this day, when I go places, the people who speak are the people who have the largest churches, people who have the nicest buildings, because they are the ones who are successful. They are the ones who are really doing good ministry. And that might be true. 
But this isn't the way that we measure success. And so what happens then is that pastors are leaving the pastorate at an, at an astounding rate because they, they can't hold to, this, to these five criteria. They become really discouraged. Again, I just want to say to you, none of this is in here. It's not in here. And none of this existed, or hardly any of this existed, for almost 2,000 years of the church. These are all relatively recent inventions within the church. But this has become our apologetic. This is how we defend the faith because, see, if I can say to a person who's in the business world that I have 30 people that work for me, I have this corporation, and that I have 30, 40 people who work for me, then it just... It just, it just sounds more respectable. So, if we're going to do apologetics, then let's do biblical apologetics. Let's, let's, let's do what is part and parcel of this. It's not that the business world doesn't have anything helpful. There isn't any wisdom there that we can borrow. We can this church uses many business principles by some really talented people, and we flourish because of it. But we are not a corporate model. There are basically two kinds of churches, maybe three, but I'll, I'll give you the two, familial and corporate. A familial church is a church that functions like a large family, and we do that. That's what we are. We're kind of a large family with, that we support with principled business practices. But we are not a corporate church. No one here gets a memo from me. We do talk about vision as a guiding principle. But that's about as far as it goes. So the church growth movement largely replaced, replaced biblical evangelism and became the de facto apologetic for the Christian faith. So we're trying to take the world's tools and use them in a worldly way to advance the gospel of Christ. Church growth in the United States is less than zero. It is not growing. And maybe it's because we really need to rethink about how we do our evangelism and, by extension, our apologetics. So here, in my mind, are three ways that we understand biblically the church ought to grow. This is from Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19, where Luke said, I'm, I'm sorry, Matthew says, uh, go, therefore, so go. Number two, make disciples, not just converts, but disciples. That's why I, I preach on what I preach, because it's a discipleship endeavor on my part. Make disciples of people everywhere, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, baptizing them literally baptizing them and figuratively baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, said Jesus. Well, I think where we kind of, we miss it is the going part, the discipleship part, and then the teaching part. Teaching them to observe, to do, to practice all that Jesus said. And this is kind of the rub in our culture right now because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of Jesus as Savior but not Jesus as Lord. When you teach people to observe, then you're talking about the Lordship of Christ. When you're teaching people about Jesus as Savior, then it's, it's not as mature. Um, it's an easy believism. It's grace without sacrifice. So here's another way that we can grow the church biblically. The biblical way for the church to grow number two is from Ephesians 4, 10 through 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So I'm, I'm a pastor. And so why did the Lord make me a pastor? Well, according to Paul in Ephesians, it says to equip the saints for work of service. To magnify me. To make more people like me, even as I am like Christ. That's what it says here. To the building up of the body of Christ. So by equipping the saints, we build up the body of Christ. That's the church growth model. Until we arrive to the unity of faith. So then now we go to that, those two passages in John chapter 17 where Jesus says twice, I pray, Father, that they might be one in order that the world might know that the Father has sent the Son. The unity thing is huge. Remember, there are 20,000 different Christian denominations in the world. And... Not too many years ago, we were burning each other at the stake and eviscerating each other and all those kinds of things because somebody didn't believe the same way we believed. Families were split up because, because, because a Presbyterian married an Episcopalian. Just absurdities like that, right? That made a mockery of the Christian faith and didn't do anything to attract people to the faith to follow Christ. And then five, and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to it. So, in other words, grow people so that they look like Christ. This is the Christ-likeness thing. This is another text that I think is pretty compelling about how we grow the church. This is the model. And we just, we just, we just do this. This is the ontology. This is the being of us. And then number three, um, I'm sorry, it's not from Ephesians. This is from John 6:44. To remember that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, I'm only going to get through a third of this message, so uh, we'll have to extend it. But this is an important text. You know, as a pastor, I have to remember all the time when I talk to people about Jesus that I might want that person to come to faith at that time in that moment. 
But it, it may not be that's where God is with that person at that time in that moment. It's not that that person won't ever come. It's just that sometimes, sometimes I'm tempted to be the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when Christians try to tell other people about, about Jesus, um, they, they try to do the work of the Holy Spirit and when it really just ought to be the work of the Holy Spirit. You just do what you should be doing, but when it comes to the convicting part, let the Holy Spirit have that part. I mean, there are some people that just can't let it go. You know, Freud had his issues, but he was, he was not a dummy. And there were some observations that he made that were really kind of profound. So he, he talks about this thing, you know who Freud was, right? Sigmund, Sigmund Freud, uh, the, the, the father of uh, psychoanalysis, psychology, all those kinds of things. So anyway, Freud had this, this, uh, this metaphor he talked about where he said, he called it the devouring mother. The devouring mother. And what he said was that there are those mothers in life that are so determined that their child is going to turn out right, that they control them so much and they hover so consistently that they actually impede the child's ability to mature. Because they make all the decisions. They guard them from all the mistakes. And so the child never evolves. They never progress. They stay a child. And the mother, deep inside, is thrilled with that. Because she just consumes the child and the child's life and to control it in such a way that she can always be in that place. And so, in fundamentalism, there were a lot of devouring mothers. They were so determined that their children were going to be, would, would come to faith in Jesus. That they controlled every aspect and every element of their child's life. And in most cases, in many cases, not most, in many cases, those children never got older emotionally than 12, 13, 14 years of age. Now, I'm working with a family right now. She's a devouring mother, no one around here. She has a daughter. If I were to tell you that that daughter was morbidly obese, I would be kind. She's beyond morbidly obese. She is, she, is, she is infected with learned helplessness that she, that she was instructed at by the, at, the, at the foot of her mother, at the feet of her mother. And as I, and I can just see it, I mean, you know, the mother makes all the choices, all the decisions, and she tells the daughter what to do. And the daughter's like 30-some years of age. And she's almost childlike. Now, the mother, when you meet her, is very vibrant, energetic, in control, and the daughter is helpless. 
So I'm just using that as an example of how sometimes we, we can't be the Holy Spirit and that we have to understand that, that as, we, as we give an account for the reason that, ho- that, that exists within us, as, as we uh, engage people to defend our faith in gentleness and respect, that we leave room for the Holy Spirit. So no man comes to the Father, no man comes to the Son except that the Father draw him. And so being in tune. Now, for people that might be listening to this later, I will say that if you aren't hearing the Father or you don't think that you're hearing the Father drawing you to Jesus, then you should be concerned. Because maybe the Father is trying to draw you to Jesus, but you just won't hear, you won't listen So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop here. Uh, well, I'm going I'm to ask you three questions first, and then I'm going to stop, because I have a few more minutes. But, um, but if, if you want to mark those texts down, I think those are important texts. I think they're very important texts for us, and they are a guide for us about how we will do what we are doing in terms of ministry here. So, maybe you can write these questions down and you can think about them this week. What is the most difficult question you have ever been asked about God? What is the most difficult question you have ever been asked about God? I'd I'd like for you to spend time this week. Barry always accuses me of giving you work assignments, but, you know, homework. But, uh, you know, I think this would be good for us to engage in this over the course of the week. What is the most difficult question you have ever been asked about God? What is the most, number two, what is the most pressing question that you personally have about God? What is the most, like, you know, if you, if you were talking with me and we were just having a great conversation, you felt relaxed enough and confident enough that you could just say, you know, I love Jesus and I serve him, and I, but I do, I do have this thing. I, I just can't seem to get over. I, I just wonder about this, and it's this. What would you say? And then, uh, I'm going to ask you this question, and I'll, I'll provide some answers for it next week. But what are the three most common reasons why people say they reject Jesus? So, if you've ever had a conversation with people about being a Christian, and I hope that you have, and they said they weren't interested or didn't want that, what would be the reasons? What would you say are the three reasons why people say they reject Jesus? And then if you get a chance, just write that out and think about it, and then uh, I'll quiz you next Sunday. So uh, I won't quiz you, but... So let me just, you know, before I conclude, 
Are, are, you, are you tracking with me on this? I'm, I, I really want to make this accessible and relevant and helpful to you. I really do. And if I'm not, tell me. But I, I think I gave you some good, some good scripture this morning to think about and to, and to meditate on and to guide our lives with. And so, um, you know, consider that. And then uh, also consider these, these three questions and, and we'll, we'll move on next, to next week. Um, and uh, unpack this uh, a little a little further. So, any questions or thoughts before I close in prayer? Yeah, Sandy. Yeah. No. L- let me be clear, and I'm glad you said that. Churches are all over that in in various degrees and gradations. There, there are some wonderfully faithful churches out there that are huge. They love Jesus. They're, they, they're, they, they organize their church according to a biblical model. And for whatever reason, that church has just really done very well. But there are other churches where, you know, in varying degrees, that's not the case. And I'm saying that there are too many churches that at a medium level and below, they are just, they, they've, they've, I think, have forgotten forgotten to keep the main thing the main thing and so look I I like to say that when you're I've been I've been in mega churches and I've been in small churches so this is my experience that when you're in a large church and every kind of church has its pros and its cons but when you're in a large church one of the cons as a pastor is that there are certain things that you cannot preach about. You cannot. Because if you preach about it and you offend too many or the right kinds of people, you cannot pay for that brick and mortar and the vast square footage that's involved. Does this make sense? And then there are other things that you have to preach about. You better preach about this. And you might be thinking, eh, I don't think that's a hill I want to die on. But you got to preach on it. Because you got to keep the brick and mortar together. You have to maintain all those staff people. So there are too many churches like that. And it's hurt us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me just say, too, this church has a wonderful group of leaders, both men and women, that I believe that if, if I wandered too far afield, they would, they would not hold anything back about holding me accountable in that way. <laughs> See, Rocky meant to say amen. It just came out, yeah, right. Uh, but uh, but I'm, I'm just telling you, it's true. Yeah, it's true. And so we are blessed in that way. We are blessed. So anyway, well, let's close in prayer, and then we'll sing our final song.